Oh, hello. Hello. Oh my goodness. This is a very special episode. I'm really excited. <laughs> and I don't sound like I'm super hoarse after going to Twitch Chicago last night. So. Yeah, and I'm not as hungover as I thought I'd be. <laughs> <laughs> All winning. All winning. All winning. Oh my gosh. So, for those of you who can't tell, uh, we might sound a little different this week. Uh, that's because we are recording from my apartment together. We're in the same room. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. If you don't know, uh, Yeva and I don't live close nope. to each other. Nope. So, the last two episodes have been recorded over Discord. And um, that's how we record them. And we're not in the same room. And this time, because of the Twitch Chicago meetup, we get to be in the same room. And I know you can't see it, but I'm dancing right now. Yeah, she so. And I can actually see her dancing. Yeah, this happens <laughs> all the time on the podcast. I'm just like, oh my god. Like, whenever you say something, like, super sensational, I'm literally gripping my desk, and I'm like, <gasps> yep. just full pog champ mm -hmm. happening. So yeah. now I get to see that happen in real time. It's going to be great. We get to see how each other, like, physically reacts. We get to see <laughs> facial expressions. I make a, I don't do as much physical activity when oh, you're do. telling your stories, but I do like facial expression. Like my eyes go really wide, yep. and then I realize you can't see that. Yeah. <laughs> uh -oh. I have to verbalize my surprise. Yeah, but now you can see it. It's true. And now we get to be like real podcasters who like are actually in the same room with each other, and, which like, is incredible. Engage with each other. <laughs> um, but if we're rambling too much and you have no idea what we're talking about, you're listening to Herlocked Files. Boop, boop, episode three. Yeah. Which is I bananas. almost said episode four. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it's only episode three. Um, but yeah, you're listening to Herlock Files. It is our true crime and pop culture gaming podcast. Um, we do monthly episodes, and this is the number three. This is number three. And this one's going to be structured differently, but still give good, obviously good content, because we're thoroughly researched and ridiculously passionate about this topic um i i talked to a lot of people at the meetup last night about true crime because they whenever it was like passing through they were like i was like oh yeah oh my podcast host is over there what's your podcast about and then i started talking about it and then we just go down rabbit holes and then they'd be like did you know about this case and the answer was yes yes i know about that case <laughs> i know all about everything yeah. uh, to a, a, an insane degree i so. was i was finishing up my notes and because i uh, procrastinated <laughs> And, um, but I got into a full-fledged conversation with, um, Kayla and Peachy, who I'm, mm -hmm. I've been staying with, um, about true crime and Love about, it. like, a bunch of crazy stuff. So, yeah. Also, the meetup was really cool because, yes. like, so many people came up to me and was like, I was just talking to Yeba about the podcast and I had to come over and say hi to tell you that I listened to your podcast. And I had the exact same and it was super cool. Was or we really had people cool. come up being like, what's the next episode going to be about? And I'm like, listen. Listen, people. It's a surprise. It's a surprise. I may let it slip with one person, but that's that's totally fine. So <laughs> they got the exclusive. They got the exclusive. It's okay. But yeah, so it's really cool that people like it so much mm -hmm. and like came up to us to tell us about it. Like it was more than just Twitch. Yes. Although like my whole night was more than just Twitch. It stuff. was. Yeah, and I I had, I had people also like asking me about the city. I had people, um, you know really uh they were all very very impressed with the twitch chicago um staff the coordinators as well as the volunteers that all come out and do stuff y'all are amazing 
um, just just like I said over the radio throughout the night and probably annoyed all of you. Um, so yeah, it was good. It my, was really great. Yeah, my thing was I. So many people I talked to were like, "Oh, I I really like your Twitter content," or "Oh, I like I know you from TikTok. Yes. Like I've seen your TikTok videos," and it was just so funny to me. Like obviously I like it really warms my jellies. Yep. Um, it, like it's so nice to hear when people like like your stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was absolutely hilarious that I was at a Twitch event <laughs> as a Twitch streamer. And I got more comments about my TikToks than anything else. Yep. Literally anything else. I mean, they are really good. They are funny. They are really good. I kind of, oh, that's the other thing that I didn't tell you that we could do. Um, There is a true crime-esque TikTok that we could make after we record this. What? Yeah. I'm down for that. Yeah. So I'll probably stumble a couple times, but yeah, I'll do it. It's lip sync. It's fine. Sweet. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Just say watermelon. 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 Over and over. Don't actually say watermelon, but mouth. Watermelon. Watermelon. Yeah. Main thing I had was people coming up to me being like, I love your hair. And then it's like, it's Oh, I had that a lot. It does. I had a lot. Yeah. Hair thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nobody grabbed my hair, though. Someone shouted at me. Oh, Lord. They shouted pink hair <laughs> at me. <laughs> Then whipped out their phone and showed me a photo of them with pink hair. Okay. It was just a lot of chaotic energy there was. coming at me all at once. The metro was hot. It yeah. was it was there was definitely a lot happening throughout that entire night. It was impressive. I liked it. Yes. It was yep, a good yep. time. So should we tell them what this episode is about? Yes, we should. We'll stop rambling. So sorry. Um, so this episode, um, as I'm sure you have garnered. Uh, both Zoe and I are very um, interested in true crime and pretty much um, every as affectionately known uh, throughout the communities uh, coined by My Favorite Murder, which was coined by The Simpsons. Um, if you're a murderino, you almost always have an origin story. You can almost always remember the time that you that something just clicked in your brain and you not only were fascinated but you spent time and energy and and whatever resources were in front of you to learn more about it could be grisly crimes it could be court cases um it could be missing persons it could be unsolved mysteries you know whatever whatever kind of your niche was um there was a turning point in your life where you're like yes this is this is what i'm fascinated with and this is what i want to do um so what we wanted to do um today was to kind of explore our own personal stories of uh, whatever was the catalyst for us being as fascinated as we are today and also what helped us explore um, the world of true crime. Yes. Yeah. 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 And in true co-hosting fashion, yes. Yeba is first this week. Yeah, mine's a, mine's a bit of a bummer. Um, so we... <laughs> We're just gonna put her first because hers is Bummer City. <laughs> mine's, mine's like a little more lighthearted fictional. Yeah. And, and so we're gonna throw that at the end. So it worked out that I go second. Yeah, this one, uh, yeah, this case, um, so mine, mine is definitely gonna be primarily and almost only about a true crime case. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of pop culture references that came out of this and I'm happy to go into them. Uh, but mine was definitely, I saw the court case happening. Um, when I was a kid and I, I mean, not really a kid, teenager, young teenager, adolescent. Um, and so I, I had a good, um, I had a good grip 
on what fascinated me. And this was one that came so far out of left field and it involved politics. It involved media play. It involved the rich and famous. It involved the powerful. It involved um, so many different things on top of true crime that it really shaped the way that I view not only the world, um, but it shaped the reason why I chose my senior symposium in college. Um, it is the reason why I had a focus on um, the state of deviance when it comes to sociology. Uh, and it's the reason why I, I liked looking at society from a lens that said, okay, you know, what different facets and what different assets in society created this outcome? And it, it just created a complete and total rabbit hole mind meld of a million different disciplines. Um, and that's kind of uh, what I'm going to get into. Um, this is the case of the murder of Martha Moxley. Uh, yeah, this one is, is, yeah, this one's in, in, interesting. And I'm sure, as you know, um, I'm, I'm, uh, 31 and this murder case happened in 1975. So I'm sure you're thinking, well, she wasn't alive when any of this happened. That's because nothing was done, uh, back when it happened. And most of the juicy stuff actually happened when I was a sentient being. Uh, but we'll definitely go into that. So some of my sources um, that I had for this, um, the New York Times, the New York Times has an entire section dedicated to the updates um, of, about the Martha Moxley case. Um, e! Online, E! News Online actually had a really great article um, going into everything, and that was published uh, in 2019, actually after the Oxygen special that aired. It's not um, just Kardashians. It's not just Kardashians. They actually go into like good, like honest reporting and actually did some good stuff. Um, the Hartford Current, uh, which is the local uh, Connecticut newspaper, uh, People Magazine, uh, Wikipedia, and then my absolute favorite um, source ever to just find all of the greatness um, is American Justice with Phil Curtis. If you know me, you know that I'm obsessed with that show. Uh, it, it, I have watched a lot of the 255 episodes that are there. I can probably describe them in detail, each and every single one of you. So they're pretty great. Um, so speaking of that, uh, growing up as a kid, um, I watched a tons of real life murder shows. I read endless books about spooky shit and murder mysteries and my insatiable need to know all of the facts. Um, with that, I had a penchant for crime, the gross and the weird specifically. Um, so with that in mind, I initially saw the news about the suspect before I actually learned about the case itself. This was back in 2001 and 2002. Um, there was a trial for the murder of Martha Moxley. Uh, this case was the culmination of my younger, deeper dives, um, and it was the first real case that I remember viewing crime in a different light. Uh, I still remember researching and finding stories about, um, about this on my own, uh, and I still do remember um, how each and everything made me feel, um, especially as I learned more and more about this case and, and all the nuances that came with it, and not just the murder. A, a lot of, a lot of the, the feelings that I have and a lot of the interests that I have um, kind of stem off of the murder and actually circulate around the actions and the events that happened around it. Um, so again, uh, sorry for the bummer already. <laughs> uh, Martha Moxley was a 15-year-old girl. Um, she was the daughter of John David, uh, who went primarily by David, and Dorothy Moxley, and was also the younger sister of her older brother, John. Uh, they moved to, from San Francisco to Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Greenwich is one of the richest neighborhoods in America. Lots of very powerful people um, live there, and uh, it's definitely one of the wealthiest 
um, establishments uh, definitely in the U.S. So um, to get right down to the details, because there's a lot of other stuff to get into, uh, on the night of October 30th, Martha went out with her friends for Mischief Night, uh, which is where you kind of go around the town, uh, you smash pumpkins, ding-dong ditch, um, you go drink, you go smoke pot, and you're all together having a really good time. Um, but they lived in uh, a section of Greenwich called Bellhaven. Um, and Bellhaven was a gated community. It was very safe. Uh, everybody knew everybody. There were gates at the, uh, or there, there were guards at the gates. Um, there were regular patrols. Um, you know, nobody locked their doors. Typical 1975. Um, they had nothing to fear, so they didn't act like it. Um, so Martha and her friends met up with the Skakels. Tommy and Michael Skakel were the older male siblings of Bellhaven's most famous family. The Skakels are related by marriage to the Kennedys. Yes, those Kennedys. As in Ethel and uh, Bobby Kennedy, also known as Robert F. Kennedy. That Robert F. Kennedy, who was the former senator and U.S. Attorney General who was assassinated in 1968. So, this is a very powerful family. Yes. I'm, this is going to be the most important crux of this entire case, is the fact that they are associated to a very powerful family um, in United States politics and money in, in general. So uh, Ethel Kennedy is the younger sister um, of Rushkin Skakel, who is Tommy and uh, Michael's father. There are other siblings, but just to keep things safe, so I'm not just literally throwing names at you. I primarily only name the people associated with the case. Um, so Tommy and Michael are the, the two um, gentlemen at large at the moment. So... Oh, wonderful. Yes. And I'm sure you can see how this is going to go. Oh. <laughs> I'm already seeing it, like, on your face. Yeah. The, the anger's already bubbling a little bit. Yeah. So, um, after hanging out in a car on the Skakel property to listen to music, uh, two other Skakel family members left the house with Michael to go watch TV at another house uh, in the neighborhood. So, according to other friends um, and those, uh, those that were both of Skakel and Martha, they had a, a pretty good friend group that was with them. Tommy and Martha were left alone together at the house. Dorothy, Martha's mom, got up from her painting uh, at around 9.30 p.m. when she heard some loud voices and commotion outside the window. I should also preface that both um, the Moxleys and the Skakels were direct neighbors. These are large, uh, expansive properties um, and where each yard connects with, uh, with each other. They don't really have fences um, over there, especially in the 1970s. Um, so uh, the Moxleys and the Skakels are direct neighbors um, in this situation. So not seeing anything uh, out the window when she heard the noises, Dorothy decided to watch TV and wait for both of her kids to come home. When John returned later that evening, Martha had still not phoned or walked home at this point. Dorothy then asked her son to drive around the neighborhood to see if she could find her or any of her friends just to check up on her. By the time 3 o'clock in the morning rolled around, Dorothy grew increasingly anxious um, as she had not heard anything yet. She had called frantically throughout the night to known friends and associates, um, and this included the Skakel residents, and no one had either seen or had Martha with them um, at that point in time. So finally, she phoned the police, and one patrolman came by to check the house and the surrounding area. He did a preliminary search of the house. He checked a backyard shed um, that was not too far from the house, and he did only a flashlight scan of the backyard. He found nothing. This is also important. So he radioed it in and said that he would keep an eye out if anything was happening in the neighborhood. So he decided to just comfort her and said, hey, I'm going to drive around. Everything's going to be okay. Did no one check with the last person that she was with? So 
she didn't know nobody kind of knew what the data was yet um and with it being three o'clock they didn't want to go door to door just yet um but they were going to at least keep an eye out to see if anything was happening at this point they didn't know that she was at the skate goals um they didn't know uh john didn't know who she was with uh, her older brother um and nobody kind of had enough details to know where to look first and especially her mom Okay. So uh, her mom knew of certain friends that she was with. She knew that she was with Jackie um, and then one other friend that I'm I'm trying to remember her name and I can't off the top of my head. Um, but she, th- those were the friends that she did end up calling and both of them said like, hey, I don't know where she went. Oh, okay. So there wasn't enough information for them to really look yet. So um, when dawn broke on Halloween morning, uh, a friend of Martha's who knew she was missing went out searching for her. Unfortunately, she was the one to discover Martha's body in Martha's own backyard that was searched by the police. So that flashlight thing didn't really work at all. No. Jesus. Or we don't know if her body was there at 3 a.m. There's going to be oh. there's going to be some some Okay, yeah, that may so some that stuff. does make sense. There, well, there, so there's either he didn't see it or it had it wasn't there yet. yet. Correct. So, Jesus. yes. So, uh, Martha was found um, underneath a tree in plain view of anyone who traveled down the hill. In the backyard, uh, she was bludgeoned to death with a golf club, which was still found on the scene, and she was stabbed with the handle after the broke after the golf club broke because she was bludgeoned so hard. Yes, her pants. Now you can see my face. Yes, now I can see your face. That's why I did the yes. <laughs> um, and uh, her pants and underwear were pulled down to her ankles. I will preface that there was no sexual trauma. They found no sexual trauma on her. Um, at all so it was something that may have been done to embarrass her um, or maybe there was just a panic from the person that did it they're not quite sure to this day uh, kind of why that happened so here are the initial problems with the case this was the first murder in 30 years in Greenwich Connecticut this was almost the first murder in that county in who knows how long so we had a lot of <clears throat> we had a lot of good cops, but we had a lot of bad procedures. So um, initially, the friend who found her ran into um, the Moxley house, and she was hysterical. And Dorothy called up one of her other very close close friends um, and said, "I need you to go check on something. I need you to confirm that it's my daughter." So so far, two people who are not associated with the case, so as, as we know have been to the crime scene right they called the cops a singular policeman came to check on the body after dorothy called again uh and she did confirm that you know two neighbors have seen it they they said absolutely do not go out there to dorothy um he radioed in the murder and his report his entire report over an open channel radio Every media heat-seeking missile descended on the Moxley property and Bellhaven within a matter of hours, which leads to number two for the fuck-up of the day. So not only did, did media get there before police in some instances, but they had absolutely no official police barrier. There was no yellow tape that was put up within any length or distance from the body. It was just around the tree. So they can get as close as they want. Yes. So not, not only could the media get close, uh, I believe they didn't get as close enough to see the body. I don't think they were that rude. But they were in the house. They were in the front yard. They were trying to walk around the back. They had cameras out. There were policemen that were tramping around trying to figure, trying to keep people out. There were neighbors coming over to check over on Dorothy. 
that we're all traipsing through the crime scene. The crime scene. Because we don't know where it started. It actually found, they actually found out um, later on that it started closer to the house and she was dragged further back. So the initial crime scene is done. There's nothing that they can find ever again. Right. So many people have trampled through it's the upper. Primarily part of the speculation just because of the few drag marks that they found next to the body in the back of the yard. So that's fuck up number two. Um, this inexperience leads to fuck up number three. Greenwich didn't have a coroner or medical examiner available until an entire day after the murder. Because of that, there was no investigation of the body at the crime scene. So they had to move the body, potentially lose evidence, potentially contaminate evidence, and the only thing that was left undisturbed for long enough for pictures was the murder weapon. There weren't even coherent pictures. They moved the the body? They moved the body to take it out. And so that means a medical examiner examined the body with no environmental clues, no crime scene deductions, and potentially left crucial evidence behind. Well, also, I mean, like, you're, you're, like, the pose of the body Mm -hmm. is typically also indicative of something. Yeah. Like, which is why they take, they don't touch it. They take pictures because it could show the struggle signs it could show like how she was dropped or how she was dragged yep like so they did they did make some deductions off of that but again that's second hand they don't have photos and that wasn't and that wasn't the crime scene investigator that come came up with that it was the cops so yep so because of the findings at the coroner's behalf and the lack of additional environmental or circumstantial evidence there was a death window of seven hours from seven hours, from 9.30 at night when they heard the disturbance in the backyard. So that, that's the circumstantial evidence. That's all they have to go on. And then all the way up until 5 a.m. is when they think because somebody could have seen it or somebody should have seen something because it was done. Um, so it left a lot of speculation and was exceedingly difficult to help pinpoint a person's alibi to investigate further. They didn't start interrogating anyone. They didn't have any um, immediate suspects, but they did start going and visiting houses um, around the area. So they, of course, visited the Skakel estate. Um, and at that time, both Tommy and Michael were home. That is an important fact. At so, the time that they pegged? At the, or... at the time that they, that they approached the house and started interviewing people on Halloween night, both Tommy and Michael were home. Okay. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. The police, uh, sorry, uh, wins by the police department. The murder weapon was a special edition set of golf clubs that was owned only by the Skakels. They did do a very thorough job, and they did go door to door because the specific um, driver uh, that was used uh, was a special edition set that had a signature of uh, some famous golf person that I don't know. Um, Sorry, I'm a bad white person. So I didn't know, um, or I, I don't know that specific detail, but um, it was a specific set, a specifically expensive set um, that can be linked to a missing golf club from the set that was at the Skakel's house. So that was the first and only connection that they had at this time that it could potentially be someone from at least the Skakel property. They didn't know which, who it could have been. There's like, there was a bunch of different siblings um, in there, but they that was where they started directing some of their um their investigation 
Um, however, there were no fingerprints and there was no traceable DNA uh, back to anyone on the weapon. So even even if they were looking at the Skakels, there there wasn't anything um, uh, enough on there that could have led them or concretely placed them at the scene. Because of the Skakels' reputation, the police did everything at the beginning to not focus on the Skakels. They started looking at most of the people that were around there, specifically older men um, that were in the area that could have matched a description of someone that a neighbor had seen running through the backyard. This was another neighbor. This wasn't one that was related to the Skakels or the Moxley. This was a third party. Uh, they interviewed a 26-year-old grad student uh, who lived in a house that was actually very near the other tree where uh, Mar Martha Moxley's body was found. And they also interviewed the live-in tutor of the Skakels who had recently moved into the house. Like, very recently, like within a couple days um, of, of when this happened. So, um, those were their primary suspects to begin. Um, but they had, uh, they had some limitations to how they could work their investigation. The Skakels were interviewed and investigated on their own terms. Uh, that's not how that works. The father approved the police looking into their son's schedules, schools, behavior assessments, up until nineteen or up until January of nineteen seventy six. And when he said no, we're done, they stopped. They didn't approach a judge for any other court order. And they didn't do any further investigation. They didn't ask for warrants. And they didn't do their okay. job. That's, that's not how that works. Yep. You can't you you can't tell people to just like Stop not doing investigate. Their work. Yep. Like you're not Yep. When they asked for uh corroborating evidence to be found in the house, they asked the older sister to look through the house for them. Oh no. Yep. Yep. This ain't this Yep. She's not Nancy Drew. No, nope. can't just do like. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I have so <laughs> many issues with it. Yep, it gets worse. No. Um. So some say it was from lack of evidence that they would have not had enough to approach a judge for any type of warrant. Uh, but other people think that they just didn't want to uh, put any paperwork in against the Kennedy, uh, the Kennedy associated family, uh, in fear of backlash. Uh, or in fear of, um, you know, it just not going anywhere because they knew that it wasn't going well, to go Well, it's just, anywhere. it's like notoriety. Yes. Like, it's it's clearly, like, these people are, like, well-to-do, very, almost famous. Yep. Like, and the media was all over this every breathing oh, second. I'm sure. They, they used words like plush mansion and lavish lifestyles. And, you know, it was the, it was the perfect quintessential horror story of this murder can happen anywhere. Look, it happened in Greenwich, Connecticut. Look, it happened in Bellhaven. Look, it happened right next to the Kennedys. So right. it just it just created this 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 ridiculous sensation that didn't focus on the fact that a 15-year-old girl was murdered. Right. It was just all like who could have done it? Could it have been a Kennedy? And and it was just it was Well, they just ran ridiculous. with the story exactly. to sell it. Exactly. And, and there w and there really wasn't enough evidence for them to really make any other speculations. Right. So But when you also have like well-to-do people involved in the investigation who don't necessarily want to be Right. like the the front page news. Right. For at least a murder, yep. you know, they want to be the front page news for like making money, right? Or philanthropic means or whatever, right? Like they don't want to be in the spotlight for something negative, so they're going to be as like not helpful as possible and controlling. And they controlling. were they were trying to control so the narrative. Can, yeah. 
So Tommy and Michael stuck to their stories. Uh, Michael's story was that he did leave with his cousins and he did leave with his uh, other siblings um, to go miles away to another house and watch TV. Uh, Tommy uh, stuck to his story, which is the most uncorroborated story, that uh, he sent Martha off uh, to her house after everybody had left. No qualms about it. Nothing happened. She just left. That was his alibi. So when the brother left, mm -hmm. Martha with Tommy. Yes. Thinking that they were just going to hang out. They were just going to hang out. Tommy was like, okay, bye. Yep. That's not what... Yep. And like, her no friends also said, okay, bye. So, Tom, you know, they had no reason to suspect anything was going to happen. So, you know, they all just parted ways. Uh, Martha had mentioned that she didn't want to go that far because she would have to go home eventually. So she just stuck around, hung out with Tommy. After they hung out, Tommy said, see you later. And Martha left. The murder weapon, while linked to the Skakels, uh, was made less incriminating when the family admitted that they leave the clubs out on the lawn sometimes and anyone could have picked them up. That is a behavior that was corroborated by neighbors saying that they just leave their shit around. And when people play with it, they play with it. Yeah, but I feel like, why would you leave, if if that's like a, a super rare collectible autograph item? Yep. I feel like even bougie people don't leave <laughs> that out. You know what I mean? Like, they might leave their, like... 18th pair of Jimmy Choo's yeah. out on the lawn, but I feel like if something's irreplaceable, you don't really leave those. And it was a little weird, too, because that was, um, their, the Skakel's uh, mom uh, had passed away uh, recently. Okay. Uh, I want to say within, like, the pat like the, the last year or two um, of when this happened. And that was actually her, those were actually her golf clubs, and that they were given to the, the eldest daughter as a gift. So, um, th I, I, I can definitely hear what you're saying, um, and that that but may be something a little a more important. But at the same time, but I mean, the person who had it was, I believe, like in her later teens. So like, she was oh. a pretty responsible human. But if there was another kid that you know, they had like a nine and a twelve year old Stole also in the them, house. Left them outside. They just left them outside. So, but I see what you're saying. But it, it, yeah, they also had more money than God. So, Fair. <laughs> yeah. So while the Dobie Police Department does a bang-up job investigating their first murder in Greenwich in 30 years, uh, the media follows the story until there is nothing left to follow. The case goes cold, and no one is indicted or further investigated. Until we reach the 1990s. Well, yeah, because everyone said stop. Yep. <laughs> it was almost 25 years at this point since the 1975 murder. Uh, Dorothy was approached by news outlets and celebrity crime aficionados like Dominic Dunn. I will go into rants about him after this. Um, after the rape case of Patricia Bowman, you're probably asking, why is this important? Miss Bowman claimed in a very, very contentious case in Florida to be a victim of a sexual assault to another Kennedy. William Kennedy Smith went to trial, a fully televised O.J. Simpson style sensational trial where the jury deliberated for long enough to have lunch, 77 minutes, and acquitted him of all charges. However, during the trial, rumors arose that William was visiting Greenwich and stayed with his cousin, the Skakels, over Halloween in 1975. Wait a minute. There was a Kennedy at the Skakels? The Kennedys, the Kennedy, so William Kennedy Smith is another married into the family, family of the Kennedys, just okay. the same as the Skakels. Okay, so he's not actually like a Kennedy Kennedy, he's married into. Correct. Okay. 
Correct. There, we're in a, I'm, we're probably gonna need to post like a lineage tree because there's, there's a couple, there's a couple strains. <laughs> like a graph. Well, and or, Ethel, or, um, Ethel, not a graph, a diagram. Exactly, and 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 Ethel and Bobby had eleven kids, and then all of their kids had kids. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot, there's a lot. Um, but no one mentioned that this person was there. So while this turned out to be an unfound, uh, an unfounded claim. It gave enough credence to the case of Martha Moxley for the media to get interested again. So just having someone like Dominic Dunn to be like rich and powerful. Yes, please. I want to be here and explore every detail of this case. So just the fact that that happened actually brought it back not only uh, to the media, but brought it back to the state's attention. Um, So facts as we know them today that changed the case. In Martha's diary that was read aloud for the first time in court, and this is also the first time they reevaluate her diary, we see uh, Tommy as a very openly flirtatious person with Martha, and she seemed not to fully understand his advances. So she's 15. She's not fully understanding that a 17-year-old is hitting on her and isn't quite sure kind of what's happening. She writes in her diary. It's super sweet. We also see that Michael is seen as a jealous, shot-down flirt who was denied time and time again by Martha. He didn't like, uh, she didn't like how Mark, Michael would flirt with her and also her friend Jackie. And she also called him an asshole in one of her entries and said he was acting really weird to her on October 10th of 1975 after an incident at school. This is the first time anybody outside of the initial investigators had found this data. And it was not followed through. Secondly, when they started asking the brothers, while this was reopening and reinvestigating, both of them changed their stories. Oh, no. Completely. Yes. Wait, completely? Completely. <sighs> I can, not even a little bit was the same? I, we'll we'll, oh, we'll get there. I cannot stress this enough how incredibly indelibly and overwhelming important this is. Even if those two idiots thought this was their way to corroborate DNA evidence that could be found on the body, this was the 1990s. This is when all this was sensationalized. This is when they were finding hair uh, follicles and were able to match it to types. This is when they found blood types, not or farther beyond blood types, and were actually starting to extract DNA from things. Even if this was an attempt in order to, to corroborate evidence that could be found if they do investigate this again, this still means that they both lied. This right. still means that they've created fictitious stories and knowingly made false statements in 1975. And it could mean that they're potentially fabricating new ones now. So police completely did a 180 on this and said, okay, we need to look into both of these people immediately as strongly as physically possible as we can. This was, this was reopened in 19, uh, 1991 to 1993. So both of these men obviously had something to hide and thought they could bring it up as a no big deal story add on to the case. That's literally how they approached it. Of like, yeah, I know we said something oh, in I 1975. Just I just forgot. I'm going to reevaluate that. They were wrong. Tommy stated that he and Martha hooked up that night, and that means that they mutually got each other off. They did not have sex. Great. Where was that in 1975? Probably just sent her home. Exactly. <laughs> probably was an advised lie to not further make him a suspect. So pro someone probably talked to him about that. Um, he now said he at least saw her up until 10 p.m. Reminder that there was potentially loud 
uh, and commotion. There was loud noises and commotion at 9.30, but the last time he saw her was at 10 p.m. Initially, he had said, I sent her home at 9. So yeah. now it's an hour later, and it's after commotion was done. It was corroborated by the mom. The mom said, I heard something at 9.30. And they, they had Tommy no reason to doubt her. Did know that she heard something at 9.30? No. Uh, unless, unless he read into the, any of the details um, of, like, the news reports. Right. So... But who knows at this point. So, it was Michael, however, that had the most drastic story that made him suspect number one immediately. Michael now stated that he did go to the other house, but returned shortly thereafter. Um, and uh, he came home after a quick drive and went to Martha's window at her house. Which means he had to climb up a tree and try to get her attention because he thought she was home throwing rocks there and calling for her name. He then proceeded to tell the cops that he masturbated in the tree, and then he went home, and he thinks it was sometime after 11.30. This is the same guy who said, I went to a different location miles away. I watched this television series with my family. I stayed there until super late. I went home, and because he was home the morning of, he definitely was home the morning of, but he never said a time frame, and he never said that he went to Martha's house. Honestly, I'm just, like, really, like, I'm I'm confused by the drastic change. Yes. But also the information. Because, like, how do you go from I was watching a movie mm -hmm. with my family to mm -hmm. I was masturbating in a tree? Of the murder victim. Of the murder victim. Yep. Exactly. Also, why is that the story that you find relevant? Because even if you were trying to cover your ass, yep. jerking off in a tree is not going to put any DNA on a body. Like, the tree right. is not involved in the crime. But he didn't know what may have been caught. He didn't know if there was something under clothes. He didn't know but, if they had something. But that's what I'm saying. Like, exactly. Why would... Why, why would you change your story so much in order to think that you're covering your own ass? And realistically speaking, why would any of your DNA be on the body mm -hmm. if you're doing something in a tree yep. far from the body, far from any of that? You know, it's not like Mar Martha's not going to climb a tree to get into her right. bedroom. Right. She would just go through the front door. Her mom knew that she was out, and her mom wasn't going to get mad at her. Right. She would like to know that she was home. Right. It's a safe neighborhood. It's during a time when yep. parents like didn't have like the door was unlocked. Curfews. Like you just walk in. Yep. So it's not like she would have climbed the tree, and then nope. that's why you're trying to cover. It doesn't make any sense to me. Nope. As to why that's his. It didn't make any sense to the cops either. That's so strange. Yep. And they thought it was insanely strange, also, and that's why it made them it made him so suspicious. Also, it doesn't really help out Tommy's story either, because if Tommy nope. said that she went home at ten, and this and he did all this business around eleven, yep. and got home at eleven thirty. So that's why they think that he said eleven thirty is to make Tommy look bad. So they think that he had They're some, like against each yeah, other. just some like, like I'm sorry, but I stopped I seeing her. I stopped seeing her. I didn't see what happened after this point. Well, he should have because he should be home by then. But also, if Martha went home at ten, she either would have seen him in her tree, yep. or heard him in yep. her tree, yep, or in the tree. Mm -hmm. Um. So, what? obviously, so it, weird. it opens a huge can of worms, and they start looking at this with fresh set of eyes. They start re, 
um, and they start reinvestigating everybody, re-interviewing things, bringing out um, old leads. Uh, some people had died uh, by this point, including uh, um, uh, uh, Moxley's dad. Um, the dad had had died at this point at age 57 from a heart attack. Not old at all. So, um, so with this uh, sudden and complete shift, uh, 25 years later, um, the uh, the police started immediately looking into it. Um, they also found a private investigator from Sutton Associates that was hired from Rush, hired by Rushton Skakel, who is Tommy and Michael's father. Um, they used their services to help clear the family's name. Dominic Dunn got a hold of this report and sent it to state investigators and a very, very controversial man by the name of Mark Furman. If you recognize the name Mark Furman, that is the same Mark Furman who in 1995 resigned from the LAPD after recordings of him using racist language surfaced during the O.J. Simpson murder trial. That's the one when Cochran started playing his video, playing the recordings in court, and it was a huge okay. freaking hoobla. Um, uh, as a early retired cop and a newfound author, he speculated in a 1998 book, Murder in Greenwich, that Michael, not Tommy, killed Martha. So he made uncorroborated, at that point, unsubstantiated claims that, based on the, um, the Sutton Associates information that they found, which I will go into, um, that Michael was the one to kill them, not Tommy. So he... He publicly put that out into the hem into the freaking world, saying this before the cops had any time to actually bring up any charges. This is important. Long story short, uh, what was found in the Sutton um, Associates information and then what investigators went further down and what state um, attorneys also went further down in order uh, to corroborate this information, they found classmates at the Elon School uh, a behavioral correctional, a behavior correction facility and substance abuse treatment center for the rich in Poland, Maine, who corroborated stories that Michael admitted that he did the murder. He would go on to say things like, don't worry, I'll get away with it. I'm a Kennedy. So while he was at the school uh, being treated for alcoholism um, and was also, you know, a, a far off place where rich people could shove their kids in order to get corrected and become potentially uh functional human beings in the world and he went to this place when he went to this place immediately after martha's uh, martha's murder when he was 16 to when he was 18 yep well that's not suspicious at all not suspicious at all so um neighbor na neighbor girl gets murdered in her backyard yep immediately sends son off to somewhere undisclosed and there were quite a few reports and there were quite a few claims and quite a few corroborated um things the family was pretty open about it um just because of the family in general's history with substance abuse um that uh there were um that that he was suffering from alcoholism and that he did need to get treatment and then that's why he was sent there so that that's the only reason they claimed that was i mean it was also true like he he, he was an alcoholic right so um, you know, good for him on 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 getting treatment, but you, what what the fuck? Um, so yeah, so he would say statements um, about how he how he killed her. He would say statements like, you know, don't worry, I'll get away with it. I'm a Kennedy, um, or I'm never gonna get in trouble, or they don't have anything on me or anything. And he would admit this to other students in um, in the the school. 
There were some trouble with the witnesses um, as they are almost all teenagers with recovering substance abuse issues. So there were um, there were a lot of holes that the defense was able to kind of put in through all of this uh, testimony that, you know, can you really believe a heroin addict? Um, and actually the main witness actually died by the time the proceedings happened in 2001 and 2002 from a heroin relapse. So um, they were able to get the wife to help corroborate it, and they were able to get um, other students in order to, to come forward and say, during this time that he was here, he said this. But again, this is all very circumstantial. This is all very he said, she said. This is all hearsay up until the point that you can actually prove it. He didn't say that to any – he never admitted it. He never made a statement. He never uh, confessed that he did anything, and there's still no physical evidence stating that he was – stating either which way saying that he wasn't uh around martha moxley or he was near martha moxley so there, there's still no corroborating evidence but even without the physical ties the state's attorney's office felt that they did have enough supported evidence to prosecute so they did take it to a grand jury it was a single judge grand jury they did not do a jury or they did not do a grand jury of peers um the uh the judge stated that there is enough for an indictment and uh, so the first-degree murder charges were set up against Michael Skakel um, in 2001. Uh, by the end of the murder trial in June of 2002, Michael was convicted for the murder and got 20 years to life for the murder of Martha Moxley, nearly 30 years after the actual murder date. Many of his very powerful family members maintained his innocence and mentioned they would be in the Court of Appeals for this unjust ruling. You're probably wondering why, why I'm skating over the very juicy details of the entire trial. Uh, it is because there is so much more happening after the trial in the appeals that are way more interesting. Yep, there's more. Oh, <laughs> so, I'm surprised they're able to, like, I'm surprised they were able to convict him, though. So they, so it was... Um, just circumstantial evidence. Yes. I mean, granted, I understand that he changed his whole story, but typically, like... So enough of it, so, so, um, as, as we know, when it comes to, to any type of legal proceedings, it is, um, guilty until proven innocent. There wasn't enough substantial doubt in the jury's mind to not convict that it wasn't Skakel. Right. So I should say, I should be more specific, that it wasn't Michael. Michael. Um, so that was the main reason why they convicted them, because there wasn't enough evidence to prove that it could have been Tommy. And there wasn't, and because of uh, the nature of the um, proceedings and the nature of the interviews that they had, it seemed that there was enough evidence, at least for them to come to the conclusion of, yes, this right. is this is what we want. Because there wasn't what enough information that proved he didn't do it correct just as much as there really wasn't enough information that, that proved he did correct but he was very sus mm -hmm. <laughs> so and there were even people there's some there's some real dark recesses of the internet on this one there were even some people that claimed that it could have been john moxley that did it because he was out of the house during the murder window the dad the the uh older brother oh and i i took three minutes on that that piece and i was like i can't this is it, there, there, there's no reason for it but like there's there's so many but apologists conspiracy and theories. conspiracy theories out there that are just like no it couldn't be a kennedy i think it, it was just the brother and it's like jesus okay did anyone think it was the the cousin that was visiting he that that was never that was never corroborated or substantiated okay, so he, so he no probably one, wasn't even there oh no one could prove that he was there correct that weekend. correct okay never mind yep. continue 
So, Michael Skakel got a new legal team. Uh, and his new uh, attorney filed a request for a new trial in August 2005. Uh, the conviction, however, was upheld by Connecticut's state Supreme Court in 2006. In March of 2006, they were also denied a request to rehear the appeal. In May of 2006, Skakel's attorneys gave a judge... Um, uh, the names of two men who had been implicated in the murder uh, in, in the murder of Martha Moxley by a newfound witness named Tony Bryant. Tony Bryant happened to be the cousin of NBR, NBA star Kobe Bryant. We're just getting everybody up in here. We are. So this was a story that was never corroborated. But the story that they're trying to implicate is new evidence here in 2006 is... Um, Tony Bryant and two other unnamed associates traveled up from New York. I'm sorry, traveled up? Up from New York? Or over? I am I can't see ge geography in my head right now. Anyway, traveled from New York into Connecticut, supposedly during the same weekend, supposedly said they wanted to go around and murder someone, supposedly said they wanted to find some rich bitch in order to rape, supposedly said they wanted to do all this stuff. It is a completely ridiculous story that has never been corroborated. Um, it turns out that Tony Bryant is a huge follower of the case and probably made all of it up. So they're trying to say that this is new evidence and new reason for the case to be revisited and for Michael Skakel's innocence to potentially be proven because it could have been these three random unassociated people who got into a gated community in Greenwich, Connecticut and murdered a random 15-year-old girl that they had no association with. With a weapon that they just found on someone's Potentially. lawn? Potentially. Yep. So obviously that was thrown out and was never entertained. Um, this story was never corroborated uh, just because enough doubt um, in the public. Uh, yeah. Yep. Sorry. I'm reading my notes in, in, in correct order. So after all of this, Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote an article in The Atlantic in 2003 arguing that his cousin's conviction was a travesty. Uh, he started getting letters, including one he said that advised uh, him to contact the old classmate of the Skakels from Brunswick School in Greenwich for information. And that's how more of this information started and how this started. It, it was, yeah. So Robert Kennedy Jr. got involved in this. So in July of 2006, uh, Skagel's attorney, uh, Theodore Olson at this time, petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. He was denied. A year later in 2007, attorneys for Skagel requested a new trial on the grounds of the two men named by Bryant may have committed the murder. So they brought it up again. That was denied in October of 2007. Again. Skagel's team appealed the rejection um, took that rejection of hearing the the new story about the two men that could have uh, murdered them, murdered Martha Moxley, that completely is false. Um, appealed the rejection at the state Supreme Court, so the Connecticut Supreme Court, again in 2009, and again in April in 2010. Do you see how much money is being spent yeah. on these appeals? The state has to return each and every time and use up these same resources each and every time to fight against this. So each and every time they are doing this, they are actually taking resources away from other court cases that need to be tried. And it's we're not done here. We're still going. In September, his it's team... It's not like they're making any headway. No. 
But they're they're wasting the court's time. They're wasting precious resources. They're wasting the state resources, and they have endless money just being thrown at this. If you're not angry at this yet, I don't I don't know what to tell you. This this is what blew my absolute. Mind. I think I'm too much in shock to be angry. Yeah. The anger will come later. You'll get a phone call I gotcha. from me at like 8 p.m. I gotcha. You'll just be like, what the fuck? It's also for our listeners. <laughs> um, so that September, um, his team again appeals. This is September of 2010, citing the incompetent counsel at trial for um for them uh, was the reason they didn't that the reason that they um had the outcome that they had that there were there was insufficient um. Uh, defense support by his team during the 2001-2002 trial, which is why he needs to be, he needs to have a new trial because they didn't even uh, corroborate their client's alibi and he didn't emphasize nearly enough that there was no physical evidence tying Skakel to the crime scene. Um, his attorney uh, at that time, Michael Sherman, uh, who was uh, who was the attorney for Skakel at that time, uh, stood by his handling of the case and said, I did the best that I could. Um, and uh, the, um, the their appeal was denied. So again, another appeal denied. In January of 2012, Skakel's attorneys petitioned for a sentence reduction, arguing that should he that he should have been tried as a juvenile because he was 15 when the murder occurred. This is the first time they're actually trying to pivot, saying, well, if he did it, maybe he should just be tried as a kid instead. Yep. Yeah, you're a little too late for that. A little bit. A three-judge panel rejected that request in March of 2012. He came up for parole for the first time in October of 2012, and he was obviously denied. Um, he would then again be eligible, um, as per the law, in most in most places every five years. In October 2013, Superior Court Judge Thomas Bishop agreed that Sherman had done an inefficient job and vacated Skakel's conviction. Citing in his decision, among other things, that Sherman's inexplicable failure to introduce evidence that implicated Tommy Skakel, the police's original suspect. So he's saying, essentially, because you didn't bring up the fact that Tommy Skakel could have killed Martha Moxley in the window that we know, according to, his, to to Michael's statement, that he did not see Martha and he tried to see her at 1130. From that 10 o'clock window to the 11, 1130 o'clock window, Tommy could have killed her. It's actually from the 9 o'clock window. 9 o'clock window, yeah, even. Yeah. Because she was there with Tommy. Exactly. So because Sherman didn't bring that up, the judge ruled and said, yes, you deserve a retrial. Throw one kid under the bus to save the other. Basically. It would be an understatement to say that the state did not possess overwhelming evidence of Michael's guilt. That's So he's overturning a jury of peers and also a ton of other court cases. Michael was released on a $1.2 million bail in November 2013 pending the state's appeal. Robert Kennedy Jr. said to the press, Everybody in my family knows that Michael is innocent. Um, uh, the only crime that he committed was having a bad lawyer. This is again from RFK Jr. No. Prosecutors appealed this, uh, appealed, uh, the appeal, um, the vacation of his conviction in August 2014. Meanwhile, Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote a book about the case. Because this didn't go to trial until much, much later. So the case, so the book was able to be released called 
framed in 2016, in which he insists his cousin had an airtight alibi and argues for guilt of the two men named by Tony Bryant. The original title of this book was Media Lynching, the Prosecution of Michael Skakel. I wonder who told him to go with Framed. Their PR agency? Yeah. So finally, on December 30th in 2016, so this is after they have sent the appeal for the um for the uh vaca- uh, for, for the vacating of the conviction, the prosecution is trying to build a case saying, hey, we need to re-prosecute this guy. Skakel is out still. Skakel is still out on bail and has waited two and a half years in order for this new case to come up. The Connecticut Supreme Court disagreed with the other judges, uh, with the other, with the other judges, with the other judges um, vaca- uh, vacating of the conviction and reinstates the conviction. However, after the judge who wrote the deciding opinion, because it was four to three, left the court Skakel's attorney asked them to reconsider and the court upheld the reinstatement of the conviction. Um, so, so sorry, this is getting really confusing. I'm going to back up for two seconds. The, um, the, the judges that ruled on the reinstatement of the conviction ruled four to three, one judge left. So they asked it to be reconsidered. It went back to court to be reconsidered with um the new judge and they still upheld the same um the same ruling which is saying we're going to keep the conviction skakel's team went back and immediately filed another request to reconsider it wasn't until january 30th of 2018 that the prosecutors um that the prosecutors uh finally went to court um to get skakel's bail to get revoked however the court refused because then on may 4th of 2018 the connecticut supreme court upheld the vacation of skakel's conviction and ordered a new trial so skakel is currently out and they have exhausted every single appeal and the prosecutors have almost exhausted everything except for one now new retrial this is the last one this is the last one that they can do the connecticut state's attorney's office does not know if they will re-prosecute so the conviction may stay vacated and he may stay out of prison and there may not be anybody actually convicted for the murder of Martha Moxley. And that is where we stand today. Wait, but how? Yep. How does that work like that? So we do have a system. My eyes just bugged out of my head so hard that I'm my eyes are actually watering now. So just the same as we have checks and balances in our government we have checks and balances in our court system right we have enough we have enough room in our systems for each level of the court to evaluate another's decision we have gone through local county state supreme all the way up to us which still didn't entertain it but it has at least gone through every level of the connecticut supreme court so if they lose a retrial it will have to get escalated but that's more money that's more time by now this this entire saga has gone on for 43 years we don't know given the fact that we have no new information we have no confession we have no um new evidence 
We have no corroborating physical evidence. There is no guarantee that if we go to retrial that he will be convicted. So it may be better just to not go to a new trial. That's insane. Yep. And also, like, I don't understand, like, the... I guess my brain doesn't really understand the whole... He was convicted. Mm -hmm. They appealed. Yep. They are, like, so then he was... They accepted that he was released. Mm -hmm. After many, many tries. Pending a new trial, which that would either keep him released or put him back. Correct. But... And there was another decision back and forth, and then it landed on the same decision that they made of we're going to vacate that, and then we're going to get a retrial. So it was a whole ping pong tennis match the whole time up until we finally have this decision in 2018 that that's not going to happen. If you convict somebody and you appeal, you're appealing for a new trial. Correct. You're not not stating that this person is innocent. Correct. However, they don't know if they have enough information enough new information that hasn't already been either disproven or now that there's these new stories that are out there as as quote-unquote evidence that it could not have been Michael because it could have been Tommy or it could have been those random three guys or it could have been someone else. So now there's enough, there's been enough information put out there that it may not be worthwhile to retry it. Right, but like he... I know, like, I know. how is he? I know. So he technically was convicted, but his conviction was vacated. He's not he's not innocent, innocent but there was but he's enough no longer guilty, which is why they can't keep him in jail while they wait on the retrial. Correct. And they and they're still not sure if they're actually going to go to a new trial. So this entire saga hits every point for me. It is yeah. political. It is the court system. It is police procedure. It is media. It is it is the power of 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 um stature and and money and and um you know just being this most like what system are you fighting against are you fighting against privilege or are you fighting against um or are you like actually fighting against a crime like what system are we fighting against here at this point it's it's not even i feel like it's not even about the murder no and it's not because you know poor dorothy is still alive martha mox's mother is still alive and she's i think approaching her 90s and you know, this woman has been in every court case that she can be in. She has been in every courtroom. She has been there as a staunch advocate being like, do not forget that my daughter is dead. Do not forget that. And that's what none of these proceedings are about. None of these proceedings. It's also what none of the books are about. No. Like any of the books that it's are all the drama. this. It's all about the drama. It's all about the drama. The political connection. And there is still a 15-year-old girl who was murdered in her backyard on her way home. Where she, it's it should be one of the safest places that you can go. She was among friends, and somebody betrayed her. And we, and I, I don't know it's who also else a to think of. Violent crime. It was because, awful. Like, it was they, they still, they still had a hard trouble determining which of her wounds was the one that killed her because she was so severely beaten and stabbed. And, and, they, and just the stabbing too like not even the beating so like sometimes in in cases where someone's bludgeoned to death mm-hmm. it's like a moment of rage yep where you're like taken over c- taken over and you're continuously beating somebody yep to death but the fact that the murder weapon broke normally that's the like the like 
normally that's the moment where like someone like realizes what they're doing mm-hmm. like because it, it breaks the tension of right. the moment right it's kind of like if you were to like throw something it's your snap and then awake it, it shatters yep. and then you're like surprised that it shattered yep so like i feel like that would be the moment that you realize what you're doing. You're like, oh my god, you drop it, you walk away. The fact that you picked up a broken weapon and then continued to stab her mm-hmm. with it. Like, that's a very violent crime. It's, it's vicious, it's personal, it's, you know, there there had to... That's not something that just some random person's going to do. No. Like, you you and I have, have read through enough things, and I, and I will actually bring up uh, one reason why Dominic Dunn is very important in this case... Where we've read enough cases where we know the jealous lover, we know the ex-boyfriend, we know the the jilted, um, you know, potential um, right. lover. Like we we know what that looks like, and that that is the hallmark of this case. Like th- this is somebody who was mad at her to a degree that he, or potentially she, but I'm gonna lean on he, um, just just had no awakening. An understanding of what they were doing until it was done, right? And it was, and 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 that's why this this case has completely enraptured me. I mean, the the first time I heard that this was a case with a Kennedy was just you know in, in my adolescent mind is Kennedys don't do anything wrong. They're like they're great. They were former presidents. They you know they had some awful stuff happen. You know, coming from an Irish Catholic family, you know. I sympathize with them. So it, it's just one of those, like, that's what initially drew me in. And then I, and then as I just kept sawing the injustice and the sloppiness and the, the, the scared uh, way that everybody acted because they didn't want to, you know, besmudge this family's name and that, you know, they, they, they stopped, they, they just stopped doing it for 25 years. Like it, it just, it just enraged me. I, and I just remembered, I just remembered, lear- like leaning into this. It, it wasn't a neatly tied murder mystery in thirty minutes that I see on television. Th- this was a dirty, disgusting dredge of humanity where this fifteen-year-old girl got completely lost in all of it, and and it was and it was upsetting. You know, I was approaching this age and and thinking that I'm, you know, I'm going to be close to this this girl's age, and I'm hopefully going to keep going. You know, the fact that she didn't was upsetting. So it was awful. It was awful when I learned all about this case. But it was also the thing that made me look at true crime in a way where I saw what was important. What was important was the victim. What was important is that there was justice found. What was important is is that we learned. I feel I feel like I feel like there's always a case where we learn something new. We learn a new way to um forensically testing we learn a new way to prosecute something we learn a new way to make evidence we learn a new way to have a police procedure and i felt like there was nothing gained from this one and that's why it was so frustrating but it was also just really important because it put into perspective what what um needs to be fixed and i think that that's what i really was drawn to with this one is i'm a fixer so if there's a problem i'm gonna solve it and and for this one, there just seems to not be enough solved, and yeah. that's why it just completely wraps my brain every time. Yeah. And the fact that I, you know, even if, when you asked questions, I was able to pull out stuff that I didn't even have written down. Right. No, it was it, it. It was cool seeing you like go from looking at your notes to like just completely looking at me and going off of memory alone. Because that's, I mean, that's what it was. I mean, there was a new twist and a new turn and a new 
development than it was a shit development and then but there was still something that came out of it it, it i mean this thing has been going on for years you know i i've only been alive for the actual like proceeding and prosecution of it i wasn't alive when it happened i can't even imagine what this what this has to feel like for her mom or her brother yeah. at this point of just having this be dragged on time and time again and revisiting things and it's not even being dragged on for the justice of no martha like and it's... the only reason it's being dragged on is because he has unlimited resources to just keep approaching this at every legal manner at every turn to process every loophole right it's become dragged on for his innocence correct. not for her justice, justice. correct mm-hmm. which i feel like is a lot of like that's a, like Did i say 43 a... years it might be 48 years anyway, it's a long time a long time almost 50 it's just that's just the way with unsolved cases too yep. unsolved cases drive me bonkers in yep. the sense that i like I want to know more. Yep. And I want the answers. Yep. And there are none. Yep. This was my John Benet Ram- Ramsey. This this was my case for for me. Yep. We're the one that I can just spin in circles and circles yep. and circles. So it makes me sad that it has to both do with children, but you know. So pop culture references before we jettison <laughs> off to your stuff, and I you need to talk because I think I took an hour and a half, and I'm so sorry. I think um, it only took an hour. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because the recording is at an hour. Oh, oh my God. You're so smart. I didn't even look at that. I was looking at the other stuff. So um, Dominic Dunn, uh, for those of you who, uh, he he made a career um, outside of um, a lot of his um, film industry pieces. Uh, he made a career off of the life and crimes of the rich and famous. He actually had a television show. He's written a ton of books um, about this. The book that he actually wrote about this was A Season of Purgatory. He released that in 1993, and he's uh, is very well known as a staunch commentator on the O.J. Simpson case um, uh, back when it happened. So it is important to know that Dominic Dunn, uh, while being a crime fanatic himself, also suffered from a familial loss due to murder. Um, his daughter, actress Dominique Dunn, most notably the, do- the, uh, the eldest daughter from Poltergeist, um, was strangled by her ex-boyfriend, John Sweeney. So he seems to have an affinity to really focus on cases uh, where there is um, speculation that uh, there is a crime similar to how his daughter died Mm. Um, with a a jilted lover. You have that with OJ. Um, You know, that was his ex-wife that that was murdered viciously. And then you have uh, Michael Skakel, um, who potentially killed someone who he wanted to be a lover and she denied him at each and every turn and that's how he reacted so um i see in most of his cases that he does and not only focuses on the rich and famous and and how those are uh, obviously uh proficient issues but it also focuses um he has a a very particular lens uh when it comes to female victims and kind of their stories that are around it so whether you like him or not i know a lot of people who don't I found him very flamboyant and and wonderful and just wonderfully entertaining. Uh, I know he's like the Liberace of the crime world, so he's just very flamboyant and ridiculous. But uh, his work in this case was very important um, in the fa- in the fact that he did si- find the Sutton Asso- the Sutton Associates report that was actually commissioned by Skakel's dad. Uh, in order to uh, decriminalize him and uh, eliminate their name from the record and actually open the whole new case. Right. So I, I thought that he deserved a little a little nod. Um, and then other, other pop case or pop culture one was Cold Case, the television series. When it premiered back in 2003, 
uh, the first episode paid homage uh, to the Martha Moxley case by making a very eerily similar case um, of a uh, young um, preteen uh, at a prep school uh, who was murdered um, and murdered in a similar fashion. Uh, the episode uh, name is called Look Again. So I had some other I had some other stuff about uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., but I don't think I need to go into that because I think we're all sensationalized and angry enough. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, that's the murder of Martha Moxley and what continues to feed the fire of wanting to not only know why of the murder, but why for the system and how we can make it better. Because it's, 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 it's a fallible system. Yeah. our justice system and and we need to learn and i don't feel like this is a case that we've learned yet um about the power of privilege and how it can cause so much pain so sorry i told you it was Ooh. a bummer i told i prefaced <laughs> it was a, a bummer lot. it was a lot it was it's a lot. lot i can talk for i i have even more notes and i have even more articles and i have even more stuff that was the most succinct i could get it I, so i mean i i don't like it but yeah. it was good <laughs> thank you it was good. Appreciate it. Uh, well, it just is. So my thing is not as crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of like my murderino type of origin story, I always think back. I I, I don't think a, a specific case comes into my mind. Yep. Except of course now, hearing you talk <laughs> about this case and how it made you think and how it affected you. Yep. Two cases came to mind, and I was like, "Oh, I should have done those." You I was like, "Why didn't I?" And I'm going, "Well, yeah, yeah. yeah." Like, I, I'm like, "Why didn't I? Why didn't I think of that?" And I think it's just because, like, whenever I think of my fascination with murder and true crime, mm-hmm. I always go back to not the first case that made me dive into research, mm-hmm. but the first memory that I have that was associated with murder great so mine is a little more lighthearted. good in the sense that it's not real <laughs> it didn't really happen okay um but i will say and i'll, I'll have to do this in an in another episode mm-hmm. somehow mm-hmm. It, we'll, we'll make it work yeah but the i think the two cases that threw me into research as passionately as you feel about this case mm-hmm. would be adnan saeed yeah. Um, which that was at uh irrelevant person that I was dating <laughs> who was super into podcasts, got me into podcasts through serial. Oh, okay. That was like the first true crime podcast I had listened to. Love it. And I was obsessed with it mm-hmm. in the in the sense that I got so enthralled in the case that I then listened to another podcast about the same case. Yes, yes. But from a different perspective. Yep. Um, which I believe that one was called Undisclosed. I believe you're correct. And the person who did the Undisclosed podcast also wrote a book that I went, then went out and bought. And I haven't finished it because I typically only read when I'm on vacation, which I rarely get to do anymore. <laughs> um, and so I've read like half of it. Um, but that case, I just wanted to know everything. And that's another like unsolved case mm-hmm. that... I feel the victim has been slightly lost, yep. but in in a different way, yep. in like an aspect of like someone who's being um, convicted is actually more potentially innocent than guilty. Correct. 
And so it's the case has now been about proving his innocence mm-hmm. um, because he doesn't have the money and the power that, you know, your case had to kind of overthrow all of these convictions. Right. Um, and But the victim, I feel, is still lost. Yep. The other crime that came to mind was the yogurt shop murders. Still, which is another one that I researched, like, and read books about. That one is still chill-inducing. And that I... one's, like, I can't even. We're both shaking our head at each other <laughs> in disbelief about how much, how much that case kind of fucks you up. Yeah. In, in just it, its details, but also the fact that it's, there, there's nothing on yeah. it. There's just nothing. But, like, and the re- and Well, there's think... so much, but there's also nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason why those two things didn't pop into my mind Mm -hmm. like when we had the discussion of what we were going to do for Mm -hmm. this episode I think that's just because I feel like that came way later I mean I was yeah in my life you know I was so interested in true crime and crime tv shows and books and and every and movies mysteries I was into all of that far before I found serial far before Mm -hmm. I heard of the yogurt shop murders like I was I'm trying to think maybe 19 or 20 when i listened to serial right i mean that's like that's only four years ago like i i've been obsessed with like aspects of true crime far before then so i think that's why those didn't come to mind but i would really love to dive into those later yeah but i think i think it's a good balance though that i don't have as much of an intense case yeah totally because it all it'll kind of my mine is yeah my mine is intense because it's it's energy encompassing oh absolutely. like there's there there's so much emotional chart i'm sure you saw that i almost cried um I did. Uh, yeah <laughs> I, saw and I was like oh my god no yeah no it's 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 a very upsetting case it but is. it's but it's also it's important and that's and that's what i think is really hard um for for a lot of people especially people who don't want to delve into true crime it's hard it's hard it, it's hard to discuss it but it's so important yeah and, it, and it's not important to know you know how they died it's important to know what was done in order for 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 there to be a, a successful coherent and hopefully healing conclusion to what is potentially the worst event in someone's life and how anger inducing it feels and when they're helpless that yeah and just just how helpless you felt you, yeah. you feel when that happens so but so hopefully i i feel like hopefully for her listeners the fact that mine is not as crazy intense is a little bit of like a reprieve a reprieve yeah. yeah so i'm going to talk about the shining yay <laughs> so not a real, not a real true crime thing. Um, great series, though. But the reason God. why this is the first thing that flew into my mind mm-hmm. is because my earliest memory—I cannot, for the life of me, remember anything really before I was six years old. Okay. Um, not sure why. Brains are weird. <laughs> um, however, I do distinctively remember and have been told by my mother that um, I was five years old when I watched The Shining. Okay. That was my all-time favorite movie at the age of five was The Shining. Fantastic. I loved that movie. I think I think I must have watched it multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ride my bike around the neighborhood uh, singing Red Rum like a creepy, creepy child. <laughs> um, and wasn't on a tricycle. 
That's good. Was at least on a bicycle. That's good. At the age of five. That's a nice dir- dir- Maybe differentiation. Maybe had training wheels. Not sure, <laughs> but was not on a tricycle. Um, but I would like. I was so um, enamored by the fact that Red Rum was murder mm-hmm. backwards. I loved that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It was. It was your aesthetic before you knew. Yeah. It just. It. It felt right. Yep. Which is not great to say. Um, not what I meant. Um, no. And then like I grew up watching. All my my parents did not believe in the in the mindset of like we're going to cater to our children. It mm-hmm. was more like we're going to do our things and you guys are going to be yeah okay with it. And I as long as we're parenting. not like showing you graphic yep. things, like it's it's fine. So I watched a lot of Law and Order, mm-hmm. CSI, CSI Miami, Criminal Minds, Bones. I watched it all. Uh, Psych. Yes. I watched I watched it all with my mom. I loved Psych. Uh, my mom read mystery mm-hmm. books i read mystery books we played mystery games that you know sometimes had to do with murder sometimes not mm-hmm. um so i was very like it it was something that i was i don't know like aware of mm-hmm. at a very early age yep so the shining if you if no one knows what it is you're missing um, out you, you are <laughs> is a horror novel uh by american author stephen king which was published in 1977. This was King's third published novel, but first hardback bestseller. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, and the book established King as a horror genre author, like a well-known horror genre author. Um, fun thing is that uh, Stephen King loves the Red Sox, um, <laughs> and I'll get into why in a minute, um, but I actually met him at a baseball oh, yeah, game. you told me this, yeah. I did tell you this. Yep. I met him at a baseball game when I was little because he was just in the crowd. He loves to go to those games, and we were at one, and uh, my mother brought me over to meet him and um, because I begged her, <laughs> and um, he, was, he was very shocked to see a very small child <laughs> tell him that not only did I love The Shining, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted his autograph because of how much I love The Shining. I think he thought that my mom had come over to talk to him, mm-hmm. and I was just trailing along. But I was the one who was like, <laughs> "I need to meet this man." Um, so I'm very sorry, wherever you are, Stephen King, for probably horrifying <laughs> you a little bit. You also might have enjoyed it. it. Yeah, you might have enjoyed it. You might have enjoyed you it. Might have been like, "This is this is yeah. my favorite thing." Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I'd like to think that you are his favorite thing. <laughs> yes, I'd like to think that. Yes, yep, I would too. <laughs> Um, so Stephen King was born September 21st in 1947 in Portland, Maine. Now, again, he loves the Red Sox because he's from New England. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a thing. Uh, he was widely known as a horror and supernatural fiction writer. His books have sold more than 350 million copies with 61 novels published. And seven of those are under a pen name, Richard Bachman. Yes, yes. And six nonfiction books. He also has written about 200 short stories. Wow. Dude writes. Yeah. So King grew up in Durham, Maine. After previously living in Wisconsin and Connecticut for some time, he was raised solely by his mother. Mm. And as a child, King apparently witnessed one of his friends being struck and killed by a train. Whoa. Uh, Though he has absolutely no memory of this event. Uh, his family told him that after leaving home to play with the boy, King returned 
speechless and seemingly in shock. Only later did the family learn of the friend's death. And in fact, even in his memoir, he does not write about it. Wow. He has zero memory of this event. He has no recollection. Yeah. And he doesn't even include it, even as like an anecdote, like nothing. It's not in his own words. Um, he was greatly inspired by H.P. Lovecraft and mm-hmm. E.C. horror comics. Uh, King's The Shining is immersed in gothic influences, including The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. And the Overlook Hotel acts as a replacement for the traditional gothic castle. Um, and Jack Torrance is the tragic villain seeking redemption. So The Shining was heavily influenced by Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House yes. as well. Um, and, uh, the fall of the House of Usher, uh, was also an influence, and Robert Morasco's Burnt Offering was also an influence. Um, which I love the fact that The Hunting of Hill House came up. Yes. Because I'm just like, I'm also obsessed with that. There's some good correlations there. And you might know what that is because of the Netflix series as well, which is doing very... I've watched it twice now. Oh, good for you. (laughs) I've, I watched some episodes... Twice, but there's some episodes that I will not watch again. Really? Because they creep the absolute bananas out of me. Well, I can't watch them alone. My mother came to visit. She oh, was talking about you're how, smart. See, yeah, I'm not. No, I can't watch them by myself. <laughs> um, the first time I watched it, I watched it with my mom. Yep. Uh, and then she came to visit, and she was talking about how she really wanted to rewatch it. It's like, obviously, but, we're going to do that. Um, her husband does not want to rewatch it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really want to rewatch it because I want to see where all the ghosts are. Yep. That's... But I don't want to watch it by myself. So we binged the whole thing. Love it. Again. It's so good. It's. I still remember the first episode I saw when I actually saw the ghost when I didn't know that was a thing. And I did I did an audible gasp. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, like, my neighbors thought I was choking. So. <laughs> oh. Okay. So the setting and characters in The Shining is directly influenced by King's personal experience at the Stanley Hotel in 1974 and his recovery from alcoholism. The plot centers around Jack Torrance, an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic, who accepts a position as an off-season caretaker of a historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. His family comes with him, which included his son Danny, who possesses what's called The Shining, which is psychic abilities that allow Danny to witness the hotel's horrific past. After a winter storm leaves them stuck there, the supernatural forces inhabiting the hotel start to affect Jack's sanity, leaving his wife and son in danger. Mm-hmm. So the backstory of this fictional hotel uh, is told by several characters, including many, uh, and it includes many deaths of previous guests, as well as the former caretaker Delbert Grady, who succumbs to cabin fever and kills his whole family along with himself. Mm-hmm. So that's the, like, the novel plot. Um, Danny, uh, who is the son, unknown to his parents, possesses telepathic abilities referred to as the Shining that enable him to read minds and experience premonitions as well as clairvoyance. He sees ghosts and frightening visions, and he soon realizes that his presence in the hotel makes the supernatural activity more powerful turning echoes of past tragedies into a, uh, actual dangerous threats. So Danny Torrance, uh, at some point in the uh, movie specifically, uh, has a vision of the word red rum appearing on the wall, and when it 
and it transforms into the word murder because uh, it's in the movie. It's shown like in the mirror. Right. Like he's writing it on the wall and and singing it, and um, he just it, it's just red rum. But his mother is the one to see what he's writing in the reflection and realize that it's the word murder. Correct. Um, so. There's also um, visions in the hotel of this um, where the single word appeared in green fire to Danny. Um, and Tony also shows Danny the word red rum flashing off and on in the bathroom mirror. And the word murder is not seen in the mirror. Murder is seen in the reflection of a huge clock in a glass bowl materialized in front of the mirror. Oh, okay. So I believe that's in the book, mm-hmm. obviously. Um so now the film edit is that he's chanting and drawing the word, like I said, um, and the mother is the one who sees mm-hmm. it reflected. So it's slightly different in the book of how he comes upon this word um, and how this word is uh, portrayed over and over again, mm-hmm. um, which is my favorite. <laughs> um, but so then after, so back to the whole writing process of Stephen King. Um, After he wrote Carrie and Salem's Lot, which are both set in small towns in Maine, King was looking for a change of pace for his next book, stating that he uh, wanted to spend a year away from Maine so that his next novel would have a different sort of background. Mm -hmm. So on October 30th, 1974, he and his wife Tabitha checked into the Stanley Hotel in nearby Estes Park, Colorado. I'm going to say that's how you pronounce that, but like, I'm not really sure. Um, and they turned out to be the only guests that night. It was close to the closing of the season for the hotel. No one else had booked a room. They found themselves to be literally the only people there. Um, so they checked into room 217, which was said to be haunted. Oh, good. And this is where the room 217 comes from in the book. Oh, okay. So he stayed in this exact room, and he kept the number for the book. Nice. Good touch. After dinner, his wife decided to turn in, but King took a walk around the empty hotel, and he ended up at a bar and was served drinks by a bartender named Grady. Mm Mm-mm. Direct correlation. (laughs) Um, He states that that night, uh, he dreamed of my three-year-old son, running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. King woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. Mm. He got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair looking out the windows at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, he had the bones of the book firmly set in his mind. Wow. Which is just, like, amazing. Yeah. Like... Just, just to have like a, a concept and, then, and a nightmare and then boom. Boom. Wow. A bestseller. Yeah. Um, and a great film adaptation. Yes. So speaking of the film adaptation. Nice. The 1980 feature film of the same name was directed by Stanley Kubrick mm-hmm. and co-written by Diane Johnson. Yep, yep. Uh, King, though, remains disappointed with the adaptation. I can see that. Uh, having criticized its handling of the book's themes and of Wendy's character, it is regarded as... It's still regarded as one of the greatest horror films ever made, though, mm-hmm. despite King not being a big fan. I think it's always, you're always going to get that when it comes to artistic interpretations of a different medium. Yeah. It's well, I guess, I guess he thing. had wrote, I, I saw somewhere in my research that he had actually wrote, like, 
uh, almost like a screen adaptation. Oh, okay. And they basically like didn't use it. Didn't they make a mini series? They did. Yeah. Okay. They've adapted this in multiple. Yeah, ways. multiple different ways. Yeah. I thought so. I thought he was happier with the mini series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Do 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 do. So the film differs from the novel significantly. Uh, with regard to characterization and the motivation of action, the most obvious differences are those regarding the personality of Jack, mm-hmm. um, which is also a main source of King's dissatisfaction. In the film, the ghosts, because there are ghosts, uh, want to reclaim Jack as they feel he is the reincarnation of a previous caretaker. Ooh. And though the bartender, Grady, shows interest in Danny and his abilities, the entire movie is far more focused on Jack rather than Danny, which in the book, it's the other way around. Oh, okay. In the book, the focus is way more on Danny and his shining abilities, mm-hmm. um, and the house is really more focused on getting Danny mm-hmm. and using Jack to get Danny, rather than the house wanting Jack. Makes sense. So the room 217, in the book, as well as in real life, <laughs> um, is changed to 237 in the movie. And this is because the Timberline Lodge was used for exterior shots in the movie, and they requested that the number be changed to a non-existent room because they feared that people would not want to stay in room 217. However, oddly enough, you can go to this hotel, and room 217, though not in the movie, is still the most requested room. Oh, funny. So, that didn't... I mean, it didn't Didn't, have didn't curb it too much, yeah. yeah. No. Um... As for Jack, he is established as a far more sinister person earlier in the movie. Um, He also dies in a completely different manner. Sorry, spoilers. (laughs) Um, Jack also kills Dick Halloran, who in the movie, uh, or in the movie he kills Halloran. Mm -hmm. But in the book, he only wounds him. Oh, okay. So, and then only in the novel does Jack hear the voice of his father haunting him. Oh, Uh, In both the film and the book, Jack's encounter with the bartender's ghost is a pivotal moment. Um, However, the book does go into more detail about Jack's drinking problems. Because, again, this is based on King's own uh, struggle with alcoholism. Right. And the film uh, decides to take it in a different direction and more so focus on Jack's struggle with writer's block. And... In the book, I guess, Jack discovers some scrapbook clippings in the boiler room, which inspires him and actually relieves him of his writer's block, Mm. uh, thus filling him with energy, but also opening him up to deeper possession by the house. However, in the movie, that doesn't happen. He has writer's block far longer. Um, And co-writer, or co-screenwriter Diane Johnson had adapted that scene from the book, um, but it was removed later by Kubrick who wanted to continue the writer's block um, for a longer period of time and also to include the later scene, All Work and No Play play Makes makes Jack a Dull Boy. boy. Yep. Yep. And um, that does not happen in the book. Mm. That was all Kubrick trying to be dramatic. It's Kubrick doing Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is a scene that is wildly known, but not at all in any adaptation. Yeah, not at all from the... I he should be that. relieved from his writer's block. <laughs> like, that's not a thing um, in the book. So Kubrick, 
Kubrick's Jack is more closer to um, Kubrick's other characters, like mm-hmm. Hall from Space Odyssey mm-hmm. and Alec from his ad- adaptation of A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. And King's version is, in the novel, is far more conflicted and sympathetically human. Oh, okay. So, in fact, King actually didn't want Jack Nicholson to be Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he didn't want him to be Jack at all. Oh, like, at thought, all, period. He thought he had a very sinister and, like, mean aspect to him yeah. that he felt his character Jack did not possess. Interesting. Um. So, in the book, he's... He's more troubled, and you feel more sympathetic for him. You understand mm-hmm. his struggles, and and you see that he is conflicted over all that he does. Whereas in the movie, you feel like he's just this mean, kind of sinister, Not twisted person. Yeah. yeah. Um, Danny is far more open about his abilities in the novel, even discussing it with strangers like his doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, in the film, he is far more secretive, even with his mentor Halloran, who has these abilities. Um, Halloran himself also goes back to the Overlook to talk about or to talk to people with the shining ability. But in the movie, he actually lies about his mm. reasons for returning to the Overlook. So there's a little bit of like a difference in backstory for Halloran. Mm-hmm. Um, the novel also makes it more clear uh, that Danny's imaginary friend Tony is a projection of hidden parts of his own psyche, which are amplified by his abilities, because you later find out that his middle name is Anthony. Oh. We're doing the the Tony when he's talking. Tony? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's not really um, described in the movie. No, not at all. Um, whereas in the book, you find out that, like, I think what the movie makes it seem like it's just it's another ghost, or... like an Im- or like an imaginary friend or his like projection yeah. of like this is how I'm dealing with it, right? Which actually it's just an imaginary friend that's just amplified by his abilities, mm-hmm. and um, but it's based on himself and the inner workings of his brain. I wonder if that would be what some people refer to as a spirit guide. I know a spirit guide is often like an actual separate entity, but I think that there is also some navigational voice that's like part of your subconscious and i wonder yeah. what that's kind of what he's tapping into yeah especially if his middle name is is Tony. anthony yeah anthony so wendy in the film is seen as a meek submissive passive and mousy person um and this is like i said previously king was very dissatisfied with how she was portrayed in the movie mm-hmm. and that is because in the book she is far more self-reliant love it she is independent she never displays hysteria, and she collapses in the movie, which she never does in the book. Mm. Um, she's a much more calm and level-headed character in the novel. And um, Johnson uh, actually had, an, in an earlier version of the film, had her be, had Wendy be a more well-rounded character, mm-hmm. and Kubrick cut a large majority of her lines. Of course. Of course he did. Of course he did. All for the art. All for the art. Not for the um, social justice of the world. Well, because women just have to be crazy and scared. Yeah. And not. No. How they can be portrayed. And I mean, I think that also harkens back to um, King's. um, He has a lot of really good, strong female characters. Uh, And I think that probably comes from his mom. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 
So King gives far more information at the beginning um, around the family's tensions, including revelations of Jack's physical abuse of Danny and Wendy's fear of Danny's mysterious self. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Kubrick tones this down and portrays a stronger bond between Danny and Wendy to further fuel Jack's paranoia that they are conspiring against him. Mm. So he doesn't include any of the other backstory, history, tension between the family problems. Um which is also probably why everyone thinks he's just a bad dad. Right. At the there, there's no real context behind no, any of that. You just think he's an asshole. Yep. That was heard loud and clear in that movie. Yeah. So in the novel, Jack re- actually recovers his sanity and goodwill through Danny intervening. And this is not in the movie at all. No. <laughs> like, he's crazy the whole time. In the book, his final act is actually to enable Wendy and Danny to escape the hotel before a defective boiler explodes. Whoa. And that is what kills him. (gasps) He's a hero. He's a hero. Whereas in the film, the hotel remains standing. The boiler is completely missing from the entire film's plot. Don't remember any of that. And Jack remains crazy until the end as he chases his son around the hedge mage Age. <laughs> it's a witch um the hedge maze and eventually ends up freezing to death yep which is another iconic scene uh also there are living topiary animals in the novel but those were omitted and replaced by that said hedge maze oh uh so even the maze is not in the book wow um but the maze acts as a trap for jack and a refuge for danny in mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. so In the film, the hotel seemingly derives its malevolent energy from being built on an Indian burial ground, but in the novel, the hotel's manifestation of evil is far more in line with King's previous themes, like in Salem's Lot, as well as Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, which is that a physical place may absorb the evils that transpire there and manifest them as a vaguely sentient malevolence. Yep. Meaning that, like... The film kind of blames the evil house on um, angry dead people that were, like, built upon. Right. Whereas King believes that the hotel um, has grown malevolent because of the evils that have transpired within it. It sort of absorbs it through, you know, evil, gross osmosis and then sort of lingers there but also can continue to manifest. Right, which is why in, like, The Haunting of Hill House... It's not necessarily the house that's evil, right. but all of the stuff that went on in the house, the house kind of keeps that and uh, and keeps it lingering and absorbs it and yep. then, you know, puts it out onto other families that live inside of it. Yep. Um, so now for the movie, scenes with the ghost girl twins in the hall, mm-hmm. the torrent of blood spewing from the elevator, mm-hmm. and other iconic moments like the typewritten pages that Wendy discovers and the lines, words of wisdom, and here's Johnny are all exclusive and unique to the film. Oh, okay. Uh, so all that's just the movie additives. Yep. Um, and the here's Johnny thing is actually completely improv. Oh, I believe that. Yeah, it's just something he threw in there. Yep. So, The Shining uh, had, or has had a bunch of influence on pop culture, Mm -hmm. as you would think, because it is a very well-known novel. It is an extremely well-known and accomplished movie. Mm -hmm. Um, It 
adapted into series. It has a sequel yep. that Stephen King wrote, as well as has now been adapted into Doctor Sleep. I believe is that a is it a series or a movie? I think it's a movie for okay. now. Right. So another movie. So it has also influenced um, Twister, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, mm. The Simpsons. Slipknot pays homage to The Shining in a music video for their song Spit It Out. Scream Queens has an episode in which a hedge maze plays a significant role. And metalcore band Ice Nine Kills has a song primarily inspired by both the book and the movie. Ooh. Psych, which was one of my favorite TV shows uh, growing up, has an entire episode based on the film called Here's Lassie. Oh, right. It's so good. I completely forgot about that. I know. Now I feel like I need to go rewatch it. <sighs> I love Lasseter. I just think of how stupid he is. Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Um, there are also nods to The Shining in Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. the movie Hostel, and even Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Uh, without the prestige of The Shining, it's hard to imagine that movies like The Silence of the Lambs, which uh, explores serious themes about serial killers using human flesh as wardrobe, would exist. Yep. Um, and... Another pop culture thing that took influence from The Shining, which falls into our gaming category, would be Lairs of Fear 2. Excellent. I love that entire franchise. It's so good. So if you don't know what Lairs of Fear 2 is, uh, it is the sequel to Lairs of Fear. Uh, Lairs of Fear 2 was made by the Bloober team and published by Gun Media. So um, it's a completely different story than the first one, um, mm-hmm. but just like done in similar fashions where there's um, cough, cough, layers of fear. <laughs> uh, lots so, of exploring. Lots of exploring. It's a first person psychological thriller horror game with an emphasis on exploration and story. Mm-hmm. And players control a Hollywood actor who takes on a lead role in a film shot aboard a ship. It was released May 28th of this year and has no direct tie to the first game. Although, it seems that the house that the actor lived in as a child has a very similar floor plan to the painter's house, which is the house uh, that is the primary location in the first game, Layers of Fear. The never-ending house of horrors. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think that game is also really funny, where, like, you you have to, like, specifically do, like, some dumb shit to, like, get jump scares. Yep. I remember I was watching Asian Sensation play... Layers of Fear again, and he was in a hallway where he stared at a dead rat, yep. and because you stared at the dead rat, you got a jump scare, Yep. Um, which I was like, I didn't get that jump scare, and he's like, what do you mean you didn't get that jump scare, and I'm like, I don't stare at dead rats, <laughs> like I'm not gonna spend five minutes in a hallway in a creepy house staring at dead creatures the one that always got me was the when you uh go down uh the room and then you at at the end of the hallway there's a painting and then you turn around and then it's the same wall and it's the same painting Painting. and it gets smaller and then you turn around again and it's the same painting and it's huge and you turn around again and it's a new hallway i know that it's coming every single time (laughs) no matter who's playing it no matter what's doing it but there's just a sound cue and the light 
IQ that happens at the exact time when you turn around that gets me every, every goddamn time. time. And I, I squeak and I'm just like, oh, dang it. And then I'm, it doesn't matter if I'm playing or someone else is playing it. It just, it gets me every time. And I know it's happening. Yeah. I know it's happening. And it's just, it's so good. That that game has some of the best sound mixing oh, for I, a horror game that I have freaks, played. Yeah. The yeah. sound plays a huge the, role. The doll, the doll that runs, the doll that runs into the, the wall. I can't stand any of I the know. dolls. I can't. But it's so funny. I think that's why I liked Layers of Fear 2 yeah. better. With the mannequins. Yeah. I almost I I really almost like liked that one better. It was and it was um I liked the cutscenes. Um I didn't I didn't feel uh what's the word I'm looking for? Cuz with with the guy in the first game, the 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 antagonist sort of protagonist that you're playing, um mostly antagonist, um is uh is you you just have right off the bat you're like this is bad right but with the other one you have a feeling that something's bad but you don't know enough of like did i do it did the other person do it am i surviving something did i cause something right and you're you're very much caught in this uh, a much easier in between than with the first one it just made you so uncomfortable because you know you're not good you you, you know you're not a good person that is true you do get and I'll go into the plot a little yeah, bit sorry. more. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'll go into and you'll understand why that is. Because mm-hmm. in Layers of Fear, you you're right. You are kind of the bad guy. Yep. And in this one, you're you're not. You're a sympathetic character that mm-hmm. you feel for. That yep. you are trying to understand. That you're trying to see what happened to them. Yep. And you're just trying to get through a bunch of scary shit. Yeah. Um. So the reason for that is that the actor, which you later find out, is james but like not james Mm -hmm. um so the actor begins by rushing to a stage through the halls of a sinking ship only to arrive to see a rat queen behind a child actor of james stating such a shame you almost had it before decapitating the boy um the game then cuts to the actor getting out of bed with the director berating them Mm -hmm. and then throughout the game it is revealed that the actor had previously been on a similar ship as a child along with their sibling. They had snuck onto the vessel to escape their abusive father. And life on the boat was a complete struggle, especially for James, who was the youngest. Mm -hmm. Uh, They struggled frequently to find food and stay out of sight. Uh, The ship eventually began to ration food, which made it harder to steal it. And at some point, the boat had caught on fire and began to sink think um james and his sister lily attempted to escape but only one of them survived mm-hmm. uh, and there are many influences in this game that can be seen including psycho uh the movie seven yeah Met- metropolis and of course the shining yes um and of course and like the, the reason why the actor is such an ambiguous like main character and why it's not just James is because there are three endings to this game mm-hmm. where you discover who you are at the very end. That's really well um, done. And uh, like that's why the actor is ambiguous because you're not. I'll just say you're not always James. Mm-hmm. I won't give it totally away, but I will say that you're not always James at the end. So that is why it's it Referred is James, but it's not James. Yep. You know what I mean? What's cool though? Play the game. Is that yeah? Play <laughs> just play the game. You'll like it. What's cool, though, is that Matt, who is the uh, in charge of, like, community and stuff mm-hmm. over at Fear the Gun, uh, gave me some information <gasps> on how 
The Shining, Influence, Layers of Fear 2. Insider information. Insider information. I love it. I know. It was super cool. He he. I reached out to him and asked him if he had any more information than I could find on, like, Google. That's awesome. And um, he was happy to share um, and gave me, like, a whole thing. So I'm just – normally I would, like, take his information and, like, write it up in a neat thing. But his email was so great that I'm just going to read Go for it. what he gave me. So – Layers of Fear 2 is influenced by many different classic horror films, and they all can be seen in the game in form of uh, many different references. One of them most distinct, however, is The Shining. So this is no accident at all. Uh, Layers of Fear 2 deals with a crisis of identity, and no horror film has explored that crisis quite like The Shining has. The idea that one's mind can be bent to a state of insanity due to the outside influence of environment was explored in such a beautiful way in the Kubrick Shining film that it was an instant and necessary reference for the LOF2 project. Mm -hmm. In Layers of Fear 2, the protagonist is existing, living life, despite their traumatic and troubled past. And the environment that the protagonist is placed in sparks the chain of events that ultimately unravel the fabric of the protagonist's being. Love it. While the Layers of Fear 2 has references to film due to the protagonist being an actor mm -hmm. as their creative outlet, the film's reference were not picked at random. They all play a role in the development of the protagonist and illustrate the road traveled to the point that the player takes control. This is hinted at in The Shining similarly. Uh, the Shining is not an isolated incident that leads Jack to insanity. It's the history of his life that unravels in the environment of isolation, much like being the only cast member of a film aboard a cruise ship, as is the case in LOF2. Mm -hmm. As many of us understand, the creative mind can be a tricky place to navigate, and no film illustrates that better than The Shining. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, the team at Gunn was separated from the team at Bloober while developing LOF2. We saw the build updates coming in real time and played each build as a team. Ooh. Each member of the team took something different from those tests, in my humble opinion, that is the success of LOF2. Mm. It is an exploration of the creative mind, and each creative mind will see a little something different. That is a scary and exciting idea, much like the idea that some of us will find creativity in isolation while others only find insanity. So I just thought that was a really great email. That was a really good email. Right? Damn. He also was like, if you ever want a guest, I would die to be on it. And I was like, uh, yes? Hello? So I told him that the second we have guests on our podcast, yes. he would be top of the list. A hundred percent. So thank you, Matt, for doing that and sending along that email. Yes. Um, there's also, like, not only is there references to The Shining in, in what he states, mm -hmm. which is, like, clearly, like, a development inspirational entire backstory side of it the process even which yeah. is nothing that i knew like no. i didn't know any of that information that's super cool. had gone into developing the story yeah um there's just visual nods in the game mm -hmm. i knew that they were that they were influenced by the shining based on there's like a moment where you see twins like yep. the twin mannequins yep. exactly um i think there's like a really like bloody moment that mm -hmm. just reminded me of the elevator scene mm -hmm. um so, even just the use of the red cloth and like yeah some of the silhouettes of stuff. and stuff that they do like yeah it's really it's really cool it's re yeah so it's it's a visual it definitely has visual nods in the game yep but um i had no idea that it was that in depth in the back in the back end of development so cool so that was really cool to find out yeah so 
now some information on the actual hotel that is based on. Um, as I said, like Stephen King went to the Stanley Hotel mm-hmm. and immediately got the idea for The Shining after staying there for one night. Yep. Um, so impressive. Obviously, the Overlook is the fictional version of that, but the Stanley Hotel is 107 years old. And this is the one place that I couldn't find the accurate information, and it oh, bugged okay. me. Yep, you mentioned that. So I found three articles stating that it has 142 rooms. Ooh. I found three other articles that stated it had 420 rooms. Jeez. None of those numbers are close to each other. No. Like, that's not even like, oh, it, it's a difference between 142 and 150. No, that, like, that's, a, is, that's a significant difference. This is a significant difference. Yeah. And the only reason I think the 420 is a little bit more accurate is because of the room numbers. Oh, yeah. But, it could, um... It could be the floors. But it could be the... I, like, I don't... I don't know. I hmm. have no idea. Um, because... Math. I feel like that would be something that you would want to get correct if you're writing an article. So right? hopefully the they Wikipedia, figure that out. The Wikipedia says 142. Okay. And another article says 142. Okay. But then the the articles that all had information about specific rooms and the Ooh. ghosts in those specific rooms all say 420. Well, and I wonder if they got 420 because there's a fourth floor. And maybe right? there's there's maybe they were looking off of room numbers and they weren't looking off of floor plan data. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But on the fly correction corner. <laughs> For real. <laughs> maybe speculation. Maybe Karen and Georgia can help us find that yes, information. Please, please. Um but also it... if you listen to our podcast, we will die. <laughs> um that is true uh so the it is a colonial revival hotel five miles from the entrance to the rocky mountain national park Mm -hmm. it is a repeat uh guest on any list that uh encompasses the most haunted hotels um and it's a worthy day trip from denver Mm. so go check it out see some ghosts uh, the hotel's paranormal investigator, because yes, the hotel has its own paranormal investigator. It must have. Oh, it's banking on this whole Stephen it King is. thing. It um, is. Lisa Nyhart, who leads monthly ghost hunts, which are more in-depth uh, than the 90-minute hotel tours that happen multiple times throughout the day. That's awesome. She claims and refers to this hotel as a Disneyland for ghosts. I believe that. Yeah. I believe that. But I also love that after The Shining came out, this hotel completely capitalized on on their, like, good reputation. marketing. Good marketing. Good marketing. Good business. Great. Good business. Relevancy. You found your niche. You got the SEO down. You're done. Yeah. You're they set. Just, they do ghost tours every day. So they smart. They do events. I mean, it's crazy. So smart. I want to get married there and have ghost tours right like why would you not want to do that (laughs) why would you not want to do that that sounds amazing that sounds like the best way (laughs) i actually don't want to get married and i know my parents listen to this so that was a joke it was a joke parents thank you i'll get married there for yeba fantastic that sounds like a plan (laughs) she can come and do all the ghost tours i'll pay for the ghost tours yes that'll be my wedding gift to you perfect great so ghosts yay ghosts I like talking about ghosts. Me too. Um, so here are all the ghosts that live in the Stanley Hotel. So room I'm two- not dancing. I am dancing. <laughs> She's dancing. <laughs> um, room 217, which is the room mm-hmm. that 
Stephen King stayed in, and also the most requested room. Uh, there is rumors that you can't stay in there, um, but I think that's just because people it's, it's like too often. it's just booked all the time. Yeah. Um, or they're trying to spread the rumor that you can't stay in this room so that they get the room before you. Because <laughs> I would do that. I, mean, I would be like, you yeah. cannot stay in that room at all and then go book it for myself. Um, Suckers. So this room is um, thought to be haunted by Elizabeth Wilson, a.k.a. Mrs. Wilson. She was the hotel's head housekeeper mm. and during a storm in 1911 was injured during an explosion as she was lighting the lanterns in room 217. She survived, though broke her ankles, and her spirit seemed to be a regular in the room. Wow, okay. Um, guests have reported items moved, luggage unpacked, and lights being turned on and off. And Mrs. Wilson is old-fashioned, as she doesn't like unmarried guests shacking up together, so couples have reported feeling a cold force between come between them in bed i have heard that the second you said that that yeah. sounds good i would also like to point out that i'm on the stanley hotel website and there are literally they literally have like you can book spirited rooms oh yeah this is great i love the, this I, when i say they completely cashed in on this they completely cashed in I, on my this. hat's off to you they were like we're going all in whereas the other hotel who was filmed for the shining and that that's wanted a, nothing to do with yeah. it yeah and they're not even haunted no like, they, but they were, like, concerned. Yeah. Um, so th another room is the concert hall. Paul, one of the well-known ghosts haunting the Stanley, was a jack-of-all-trades around the hotel. Mm -hmm. And he likes to enforce an 11 p.m. curfew, <laughs> which could be why guests and workers hear get out being uttered late at night. Ooh. The area is also a favorite spot for hotel, hotel founder Flora Stanley's ghost mm -hmm. to play the piano. Um, a few of Paul's antics include a construction worker reported he felt Paul nudge him while he was sanding the floors, and tour groups on the Stanley ghost tour have reported he flickered a flashlight for them. Mm. Another ghost known to wander around the concert hall is Lucy, who quite possibly was a runaway or homeless woman who found refuge in the hall. She entertains the request of ghost hunters, often communicating with them with flashing lights. Cool. Stanley historians, however, aren't quite sure about her pre-death connection to the hotel. Mm. Um, which also, like, Mrs. Wilson didn't die in that room. Yeah. She just, like, but exploded and broke her ankle. And must have just left some serious energy there in yeah. order to, like, to come back. die somewhere else and then and still then, come back to that room. Yeah. Or she just really hates unmarried couples and wants to make sure they get married first. So True. She, she's just no very determined. No. <laughs> Zero. Says the ghost. Says the ghost. Listen to the ghost, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the spirits are not limited to adults. Tour guides say the ghost of a child with autism also roams the grounds hmm. and is known to play with the hair of guests. Uh, staff says the boy named Billy is drawn to people who work with people with autism or are familiar with developmental disorders. Interesting. So this little boy, Billy, will play with your hair and also be your best friend if you understand the inner workings of, you know, developmental disorders. Interesting. On the fourth floor, so there is a fourth floor, so now I, like, don't understand how many rooms are in this building. Um, uh, guests have also reported hearing children running around, laughing and playing. That's never good. Guides say that this is where nannies and the kids 
um, would or this is where nannies would watch the kids and where they would spend most of their time back in the day. So room 401 uh, is another haunted spirited room, as they would call it on the website. It's listed there, too. It's listed there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, more than a century ago, the entire fourth floor was a cavernous attic. It's where female employees, children, and nannies stayed, like I said. And now today's guests will report hearing children running around, laughing, giggling, and playing. Plus, there's a famous closet that tends to open and shut on its own in this room. <laughs> room 428, um, you get a badge of bravery for staying in any of the fourth floor rooms, but bonus points. For if you can book room 428. Oh, boy. Guests have reported hearing footsteps above them and actual and have seen actual uh, furniture or sorry. They can hear footsteps above them and hear furniture moving about. Oof. That's actually physically impossible given that the roof is sloped oh. and also there's nothing above the fourth floor. Yeah. So the real haunt in this room, though, is a friendly cowboy who appears at the corner of the bed. No, thank you. And this is thought to be a cowboy who was hung for murder. Mm-hmm. So we now friendly cowboy. Mm-mm. At all. Mm-mm. But he likes to watch you sleep. That's double creepy. Yup. Um, so another haunted location in the hotel is the staircase. Which in 2016, a visitor from Houston snapped some photos on the grand staircase and upon returning home and reviewing them, spotted an apparatus at the top of the staircase. The thing is, he doesn't remember anybody else being on the staircase at the time he was photographing. However, the ghostly image of a woman is at the top of the stairs. Right there. Do you see it? Right there. There it is. Yep. This, um, this is very haunting of Hill House this with this image right here. This is very haunting of Hill House. Oh, Jesus. It's right it there. Really is. Yeah, look at that. But, like, even the stair layout. Like, yep. This is the, where with the, the two sides is. when it goes to the garden. Yep. Mm-hmm. You are exactly correct. That is really creepy. Um, if you don't understand, Yeba pulled up a picture. <laughs> we can post it on Twitter when yeah, we post our we episode and just be like, hey, listen to this episode and find out what this picture means. <laughs> this, is, this is it. Um,. Uh, another uh, tour group had taken pictures of the stairs, which feature uh, a few blurry little girls. Uh, the person who took the photo and other guests of that tour uh, said that there were no children on the tour. Um, there's also a pet cemetery on the grounds. That's never good. Well, it is if you're Stephen King and also yes. wrote Pet Cemetery. Listen, I have issues with that movie, so... Um, so the pet cemetery on the grounds, uh, the guides say are the final resting place of some of the owner's animals, and staff say that ghosts of cats and dogs have been seen roaming around. This is also uh, talked about as a uh, potential direct influence for King's later work, Pet Cemetery. That, that makes that makes, makes he got sense. a lot of inspiration from this hotel, right? Holy moly! He just went out and was like, "I'm a pe-. like how how." like lucky can you be to just pick a random well actually it wasn't random because apparently he was told about the pet cemetery right and that's kind of why he went oh okay was because he was referred to go to this place because they had a creepy pet cemetery Mm. um and so it wasn't like just luck of the draw Mm -hmm. he was recommended this place but i think i don't really think they had like the full story or knew that this would be a catalyst for a lot of his later work right um, Some of his de- definitely most notable ones. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Uh, but that that hotel is real haunted. Super haunted. Super haunted. I mean, you could almost make a completely separate story from just the goings on of the hotel, not even The Shining. Are we gonna do a haunted episode? Should we do a haunted? Should we do a haunted episode? Like ghosts? I got I got some good ones here you in Chicago. Some... Oh, hey now. Like, yeah. Hey now. I mean, I have personal ghost stories. I will have to ask another person if I'm allowed to say it. Ooh. But I got one. Ooh. Yeah. I have three personal ghost stories. One happened to me. One mm-hmm. happened to my brother. One happened to my stepdad. Ooh. And I believe my stepdad still has the photo that he took. Evidence. That he doesn't remember taking. Well, now you color me intrigued. <laughs> now you color me intrigued. I, I mean, I, I did talk about um, some ones on another um, episode that I'd be happy to um, rekindle, specifically one of them with the drive through um, Western Massachusetts. But Ooh. yeah. Yeah, so, we might need to do a haunted episode. We might need to do one. Mm-hmm. Let us know if you want one. Yeah, you got to tell us. We'll do it. But, but also, we might do it anyway. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean... Um, when, when finishing up my research, I tried to find an actual true crime link, mm-hmm. but there seems to be no crime, at least not well known, of or, a, documented, yeah. or documented of a person being isolated to the point where they then went crazy, ki- went crazy and killed their family. Um, there are a lot of similar stories mm-hmm. in terms of like, People that were isolated that turned to cannibalism. Right. People that were, um, there's like people that are isolated that get murdered. That happens mm. a lot. Um, but well, and we have plenty of known family annihilators yeah. that we can pull from, but yeah. not necessarily and, with those circumstances. And there's also, um, there are a lot of um, Stephen King related crimes, mm-hmm. in ter- not Stephen King himself. He's he's a good man. Um, no, uh, his he his minds other his work, business in Bangor, Maine. Yeah, his other work. Um, there's his book Rage. Uh, that oh. one influenced several um, shootings uh, and um, a potential serial killer, I believe. Wow. Um, all have not not a direct influence, but all kind of either. Those people owned this book. Those people had just read this book. Mm. Those people used this book. Weird as correlations. Direct, yeah, weird correlations to that book. Yep. Um, however, I didn't feel like any of those were directly relevant to The Shining itself. Yeah. And um, The Shining, as as much as I know, has not directly influenced anyone to commit a crime. Um, no one made an elevator full of blood. No. As far as we know. Uh, yeah. No. Good. And 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 no one you know, hacked down a door and shoved their face through it and screamed at their wife. That's good. Um, so as far as I know, yep. again, undocumented. Yep. Who knows, yep. right? Um, but but yeah, nor were they possessed by a house. I yes. really should say that no one we know of has been possessed <laughs> by a house and has killed or attempted to kill their family. Yeah, that's good. Um, but that that is, mine's a little shorter, but that is that is Stephen King's The Not Shining. by much. You're Not good. by much? No. Neato. Yeah, we did good. Yeet. <laughs> but that's The Shining. Oh, so good. A little less intense. So now go read the book, go watch the movie, and go play Layers of Fear 2 in that exact order. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. Yep. Yep. 
Sorry, my shoulder's bothering me. Oh, it's no problem. My shoulder kind of. Yeah. We're like leaning in. Yeah. We're trying to get close. Yep. I was going to close that damn window because now it's. That picture is so creepy. Isn't it so creepy? I. Oh, God. And then there, there are people that have them like uh, doctored. Let's see. So this one's a little bit lighter. This one's super exposed in order to help see like Gross. what the hell it was. So, and then there's a before and after. I mean, that one looks. The, that one looks photoshopped. A yeah, bit. but like, go the, back to the original initial one right here. Oh no, maybe not that Photoshop. No, I thought that was a banister. It's a head. Y'all need to see this photo. Yep, yeah, we'll post it. That looks like a nun. Pretty. It. It, it honestly looks either that looks like that or a widow. Ooh, dressed I didn't all think in of black that. with a hat. I didn't think of that. Or a veil, mm -hmm. depending on what time period it is. Interesting. Then there's this this silly one that's. That's clearly a child that's moving. So, um, oh no, that's the one that that's the one that's the one. No, yes, that is the one that they claim. What there was no children that no children were on the tour. What about, what about these guys? Well, little girls. Oh, little tour. girls. I'm sorry, sorry, not children, like not just any children, but little girls. Oh, that's creepy then. That they, they, you know. Their story was backed up by other people on the tour. That that's pretty significantly um, creepy. That they... um also yeah, there's weird reflections. There's weird reflections in this too. There's okay. a bunch of weird stuff. That's creepy. Yep. yep. That's that's. Yep. We'll that's... post that photo too. Ooh, that's creepy. We gonna post some photos with yep. this one so that you guys can. see. And then they're making a correlation to the oh yeah to the twins to the movie. Yeah. But... And then they ha they also have a cutout. At the hotel of the twin girls. Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah. Big, again, really capitalizing on this franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Successful marketing. Oh my gosh. But that was really good. I'm, I'm happy that we had you go last. <laughs> um, not only because it was opportune uh, based on how we've been switching it up, but also like, damn. Yeah. No, that was, that was great. That was good. So, so happy holidays. Happy holidays. Uh, we hope you have a, a safe celebrations of whatever you tend to celebrate and a happy, happy new year. And we will see you again in 2020. Woo! And it'll be my birthday month. Oh, my God. I know. That's exciting. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. I'm excited. But I think was... I might actually have, I actually talked about this this weekend. I think I might actually have an in-person birthday. Oh, my God. Like, I might actually go out and invite people instead of, like, not doing that since I've been like 25. Love that. So, right? My birthday is literally me getting on a plane and going to an island. That's not bad. It's not bad. That's not bad. It's, I, I'm hoping it'll be better than uh, any recent birthdays that I've had. There you so, go. It'll be um, fun. It'll be great. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think I think our shining moment of happiness at the end of this episode is just that we're literally in person. Yes. It's excellent. I, it was fun it was really nice to see reactions and yeah. like be able to react instead of like trying to be like do i verbalize and give confirmation that i think this is cool but it might interrupt her but this one was just like i could see body cues and i could add it yeah. whenever i needed to so it was kind of nice i'm wondering if we need to video chat we might need to we might need to we might need to we because, can probably do that yeah it's it's easier to like not interrupt each other yeah. when we make eye contact yeah and know that we're about to and say like something. and about to say and I can see in your eyes being like I have something to say please let me say it and it's like yes ma'am yes yes go. um but yeah this was super fun yes and uh it was awesome so we hope that you enjoyed the episode um please give us 
you know, you, your thumbs, your stars, all that good stuff. Um, you can subscribe or follow. Uh, check out our Twitter page as well. Um, we are on a new hosting platform. Anchor. Which will hopefully allow us to do a bit more things at a very reasonable low, price. non-existent price. Basically. So, yeah. Um, but tell your friends, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Yes. And if you're also a budding murderino and you have any questions, please feel free to ask. There are no dumb questions when it comes to getting fascinated by something. So thank you for entertaining uh, what we love, and we uh, hope you tune in for next episode. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.